Hello, friends. Welcome back to the show. My guest today is Tim Harford. He's an economist, associate member of Nuffield College, Oxford, an honorary fellow of the Royal Statistical Society, a journalist, and an author. Humans need to be able to accurately judge the world around them. With more information than ever, this should be getting easier by the year, and yet clear thinking seems to become increasingly elusive. Why are we so prone to biases, and what are some of the biggest rationality blunders from history? Expect to learn why Sir Arthur Conan Doyle got obsessed with photos of fairies, what everyone misunderstands about inflation, the danger indiscriminate doubt and reflexive cynicism have, the similarities between magic and misinformation, why smart people get hijacked by ideology, and much more. All right, quick maths. The less that your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have, the more money that you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce the costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite and you are improving efficiency by bringing all your business processes into one platform. Over 37 thousand companies have already made the move so do the maths and see how you will profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com modern right now. That's netsuite.com modern. This episode is brought to you by Whoop. I've worn Whoop for over four years now, since way before they were a partner on the show, and it is the only wearable I have ever stuck with because it's the best. It is so innocuous, you do not remember that you've got it on, and yet it tracks absolutely everything 24-7 via something from your wrist. It tracks your heart rate, it tracks your sleep, your recovery, all of your workouts, your resting heart rate, your heart rate variability, how much you're breathing throughout the night. It puts all of this into an app and spits out very simple, easy to understand, and fantastic fantastically usable data. It's phenomenal. I am a massive, massive fan of Whoop, and that is why it's the only wearable that I've ever stuck with. You can join for free, pay nothing for the brand new Whoop 4.0 strap, plus you get your first month for free, and there's a 30-day money-back guarantee. So you can buy it for free, try it for free, and if you do not like it, after 29 days, they will give you your money back. Head to join.whoop.com slash modernwisdom. That's join.whoop.com slash modern wisdom. This episode is brought to you by AG1. AG1 is a daily foundational nutrition supplement that supports whole body health. Even with the best diet in the world, it is hard to make sure that you get everything that you need. And through a science-driven formulation of vitamins, probiotics, and whole food sourced nutrients, AG1 delivers comprehensive support for the brain, gut, and immune system. This is why Joe Rogan and Lex Friedman and Dr. Andrew Huberman and Tim Ferriss are all massive fans. They have tried every other product out there like I have, and this is by far the best one available. Since 2010, AG1 have improved the formula 52 times in the pursuit of making the best foundational nutrition supplement possible through high quality ingredients and rigorous standards. Also, there's a 90 day money back guarantee, so you can buy it and try it for 89 days. And if you don't like it, they'll just give you your money back. Head to drinkag1.com slash modernwisdom for that 90-day money-back guarantee, a year's free supply, vitamin D, five free travel packs, and more. That's 
drinkag1.com slash modernwisdom. But now, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Tim Harford. Tim Harford, welcome to the show. Oh, it's great to join you. What would you say your area of expertise is? It seems like a relatively diverse background. Yeah, it's a good question. I'd say I'm a professional nerd. Does that help? Uh, I mean, I trained as an economist, actually also as a philosopher, but that sounds slightly pretentious. So let's just say I trained as an economist. Uh, and then uh, after a, a few other adventures, became a writer in print, books, Financial Times column. So you obviously writing about economics uh, and then began a radio for BBC Radio 4 program about statistics. And so I had to learn pretty quickly about statistics. And over time, it's just got more and more uh, into anything that's interesting in social science, behavioral economics, psychology, economics, statistics, data, data visualization. And along all of that, become very, very interested in stories, which which I explore in my Cautionary Tales podcast and, and all my books. What's the single thread that's tying all of that together? I think the single thread is I'm fascinated by evidence-based ideas. Uh, and I just love telling people about those ideas and and telling I'm not I'm not so much in the self-help, like here's how to use these ideas to make make a million dollars or whatever. I'm like I have to tell you this story about this time that this thing happened and what this teaches us about whatever, game theory, loss aversion, whatever it is. Uh, so yeah, nerd stories. Did you read Seth Stevens Davidowitz's uh, Don't Trust Your Gut earlier this year? I skimmed it. I enjoyed the his first one, which was what, Everybody Lies? Yes. I got, I got more out of Everybody Lies. I think possibly because he was coming at, questions that I've been thinking about for a very, very long time in Don't Trust Your Gut. So I was like, oh, this is great, but I, I know this stuff. But Everybody Lies, I thought was really interesting, that uh, that kind of insight that what people type into Facebook and what people type into Google are different. And what people type into Google tells you what they really want to know and what people type into Facebook, because it was Facebook at the time, tells you about the way they try to present themselves to the world. And that just from that very simple insight, I think so much came out. For the people that haven't read Stephen's first book, there's a great example where he looks at the most common my boyfriend is sentences <laughs> and he compares what it is on Facebook and what it is on Google. And on Facebook, it's things like my boyfriend is so loving, the best, caring, so on and so forth. Uh, <laughs> my boyfriend is on Google is my boyfriend is not having sex with me. My boyfriend <laughs> is having an affair. How can I tell my boyfriend is falling out of love with me? And uh, yeah, I mean, sometimes Google, we tell Google things that we don't even tell ourselves. You know, we just yeah. decide to type something in to check it out. And it's maybe something that we don't want to say internally too much. But yeah, I mean, the, the, the uh, stated and revealed preferences is something that I've been increasingly fascinated with recently. Have you looked at that much at all? Well, I mean, it's a, that's a classic thing 
in, in economics. And, and, and economists, I think, historically have been too, too uninterested in stated preferences. We basically said, well, we don't, we don't take people seriously at all. We only look at what they do. So people can say they want something, but it doesn't matter. Look at what they actually do. And that is the real guide to their preferences. Uh, I, you know, I think behavioral economics has, has given us a, a slightly richer lens to think about that. Um, but I mean, that, that fundamental distrust of cheap talk, I think you know, it's, it's still a useful insight. Yeah, having skin in the game, I think, is a, a generally a good heuristic for everybody to assess what's going on with. I know that you're a fan of Rory Sutherland as well. And mm -hmm. um, his most recent book, when he was talking about transport for humans uh, and some of the so, challenges. That's great books, great it, book. Yeah. So fantastic. Um, yeah. And yeah, I think some of the relatively cheap but incredibly effective signals there that uh, companies can do, because it's not just interactions between humans, right? It's interactions between brands, between experiences. What was that thing? You wrote a blog post about being delayed on the channel tunnel. Yeah, it was on, it was on, the, on the Eurostar. So all, it was a Financial Times column, but all my FT columns after a month get put on my website, timharford.com. So, you know, as long as you're willing to wait, you can read them. You don't have to subscribe, although you should subscribe because the FT is the best paper in the world. But the Eurostar, basically, it's the usual kind of story, our oh, massive queues and no one would tell us what was going on. And we were all standing around, and everyone's super stressed. And it's 30 degree heat, which I don't know, is 85, 90 degrees in, in, uh, in Fahrenheit. And, you know, and so on and so on. And we missed the train and still knew, nobody knew what was going on. And the, the point that I made is I actually wrote that column in an hour on the train while the train was still stationary. But the point was, I was, it was air conditioned. I was sitting down, I had power, I had space, and I knew that I knew we'd get to London eventually. Uh, and so it's one thing to have a delay, but the conditions of the delay, I mean, the, the, the train company only measures the delay. Like they get punished by regulators if there's a delay of more than three hours, et cetera, et cetera. But for the passenger, there's all the difference in the world between I'm sitting in comfort with power and I can work and I know what's going on versus I'm standing, I'm, I'm stressed, I have no idea, no one's telling me anything. But to the, to the train company, delay to delay doesn't make any difference. Yeah, I think uh, it's the difference between being stuck in the departure lounge with no idea of when the plane's going to arrive or whether you're going to take off. If you're on the tarmac, with no idea of when you're going to take off or on the tarmac with that countdown. It's the same reason, yeah. the, the, the reason that Uber was revolutionary wasn't because, I mean, you can call a cab from anywhere and it's a single app that works pretty much across the entire world, but it was the countdown. It was knowing exactly how long it's going to be until your taxi arrives. I had some... And, and, and it being reasonably accurate, because of yes. course some of, some of that is cheap talk, but you're like, oh yeah, the, the, this is basically correct. Yeah. Sam Tatum, who is the head of Ogilvy's Behavioral Science Unit, I think was on the show a couple of weeks ago. And he was one of the guys that contributed to the Heathrow complaint reduction thing for security. Mm -hmm. Did you ever look at Rory's stuff that he did with that? I, no, I'm not familiar with it. I can imagine the kind of thing, but tell yes. me more. So you've got anybody that's been to Heathrow knows, especially if you're going internally, especially Terminal 5, you just get backed up there's huge volumes of people flying in from all over the place to then go internationally or perhaps the reverse coming internationally to then go domestically 
And uh, they were getting tons of complaints and they needed to fix it. And classically, like engineers do, they looked at it like an engineering problem. Okay, so mm-hmm. how can we fit more of the scanners within this particular time? Can we train the staff in a different way so that they can speed people up? Are the ways that we can prepare the humans so that their bags are better done in advance? It was a, a operations logistical problem. And before they decided to invest probably hundreds of millions of dollars into trying to fix this problem. Rory and his guys said, let's just try a behavioral change, a a psychological trick before we do that. And the same way that they do at Disney World, they put 50-minute wait from here, 40-minute wait from here, 30-minute wait from here, just signs all the way along. And complaints just went through the floor because it's not necessarily about the length of time of the wait, although that is an inconvenience. It's about knowing how long the wait is going to be. It's setting the expectation. Am I going to miss my plane or am I not going to miss my plane? It's fundamentally the plane is going to take off when it takes off. Like, and if I'm on it, it's not a, it doesn't really matter how long I waited for security. And if I'm not on it, then it makes all the difference. Um, it's surprising how difficult this is, but Rory's, Rory's terrific at, at noticing these kind of things. Um, but I, I wonder, can I, can I offer a challenge to something you said, oh, two, three minutes ago before we, we started riffing on travel delays? You were talking about skin in the game and how important skin in the game is. Uh, and of course, that's true, and there's lots of good work written on it. But you can overdo the skin in the game. So one of the Cautionary Tales podcasts, one of the very first ones, is called Buried by the Wall Street Crash. So for people who don't know the Cautionary Tales podcast, it's basically about half an hour. I tell a story, quite a rich story, of something going wrong. We've got actors, we've got music, and something goes wrong, and then the social science in what went wrong comes out. And this particular story is about these two great economists, John Maynard Keynes, everyone's heard of John Maynard Keynes, Irving Fisher, less well known, and both of them making this catastrophic uh, failed forecast and missing the Wall Street crash of 1929, which wiped 89% off the value of shares. It was huge, just devastating. And I don't want to give too many spoilers, but one of the, they ended up in a very different place, having made the same mistake. They had totally different fates. And what doomed the guy who was doomed was that he had so much skin in the game. And he had so much that he could no, he was just completely invested. He could no longer think clearly. He was completely backed into a corner. Whereas the guy who did much better uh, was able to basically say, oh, yeah, well, I've lost some money, but it, it's no big deal. I haven't lost my reputation. I'll be fine. And so, yeah, skin in the game is important. It's a good thing, but you can have too much of a good thing. Overcooking anything at the moment is something that I've been thinking about a lot. So a lot of advice online in the personal development world for a, a good example would be the classic Jordan Peterson line of, you know, take responsibility and, and you need to, to do so. That works in maybe on average, perhaps on average right now in 2022, most people or more people need to, to take responsibility. I have a group of friends who are pathological responsibility takers. They are the Mm -hmm. sort of people that will take responsibility for something that wasn't even theirs to take responsibility for. And what you see is some really interesting extreme examples that basically you're optimizing to try and get people into somewhere that's like a nice gentle mean in the middle of the bell curve, trying to take people out of the extreme of, you have no skin in the game at all. Why why would you be invested in this thing? It's cheap signals. But you're also not necessarily optimizing with that advice. For the people that are at the top end, that have 99.9% of their net worth tied up in crypto, for instance, 
Like, how, how are you ever going to be anti-crypto? How are you ever going yeah. to be able to have an unbiased opinion of the crypto market at the moment? Another thing, I, I saw you do a blog post about what people keep getting wrong about inflation. And that's, yeah. I mean, inflation must be perhaps a uh, contender for word of the year, 2022. Yeah. So what what should we understand about inflation and what do people keep getting wrong about it? People think of inflation as prices going up. Uh, and and indeed, it's measured by CPI, Consumer Prices Index, which measures prices going up. And journalists, very good journalists who, who know what they're talking about, will talk about, oh, CPI was 10%. That means inflation is 10%. Prices went up 10%. I mean, and it's not wrong, but it's missing a really, really important insight, which is your, your classical pure textbook inflation is basically everything, the price of everything going up by roughly the same amount, including your wages. So the price of your labor is also going up. So basically, nothing is really getting any more expensive in real terms, because the price in the store went up by 10% and your salary went up by 10%. And kind of the problem is it's all a bit confusing. Um, here's another form of inflation, which I would say is not really inflation at all, but it, it's still going to come out in the price indices. And that's um, Vladimir Putin turned off the taps for the global energy system. The price of food went through the roof. The price of natural gas went through the roof. The price of oil went through the roof. And we spend a lot of money on food and natural gas and oil, especially in Europe. Uh, and so that went, you know, absolutely skyrocketed. And so on average, prices have gone up by 10%. But the prices of a lot of stuff haven't gone up by 10%. And importantly, your salary didn't go up by 10%. Your take-home pay didn't go up by 10%. So that's a relative price change. And in many ways, that's much worse than inflation because you're actually poorer. The stuff you want to buy, the stuff you need to buy is more expensive. Now, having explained that difference, you might say, well, sure, but why, do, why does that matter? Well, it matters because um, the way a central bank should respond to that is totally different. I mean, the way a central bank should respond to the price of everything is going up about the same, including wages, is, well, that's a problem. You need to sit on that quite hard, raise interest rates high. But the price of energy goes through the roof because there's a war. That's not something the central bank should really be trying to deal with at all. And what makes the current situation difficult is we've got a mix of both. And central banks are trying to figure out which of these two types of inflation to respond to. Um, and when I wrote that uh, piece, which again was a Financial Times column, two of the best economists in the Financial Times, I showed it to them and said, what do you think? And they said, you're absolutely right, of course. But I'll just add one more thing. And the just one more thing they wanted to add was two, two pieces of sort of policy advice that completely contradicted each other. Because one of them thought central banks should stop raising interest rates. And the other thought that central banks weren't raising interest rates nearly enough. And, you know, and they're, they're really, really smart guys. That's the mess we're in. And that's why, you know, the, the problem that central banks face and the problem we're all going to face is, is not a straightforward one. Even the experts don't agree. No. And there's a lot of talk about how there was this famous line in the Brexit referendum in, in the UK that people have had enough of experts. There's a lot of anti-expert talk. Um, and then there's this sort of the pendulum swing. So now people are saying, well, you're an idiot. You should listen to the experts. And the truth is, well, the experts probably know more than you and me about whatever it is that they're expert in. But knowing more, having more expertise, having more experience, having more training doesn't guarantee that you get it right. 
So you sort of you want to listen to the experts, but you don't want to make the mistake of thinking the experts are infallible. Uh, and as as you were saying, you can overcook anything. You can overcook the skepticism of the experts. You can overcook the the faith of the experts, um, which is why this whole game of trying to understand the world and think clearly is is an endless project. You've got a quote that says indiscriminate doubt is at least as dangerous as indiscriminate belief. That must be very similar. Yeah. So my that is a point I made in my most recent book, which is called The Data Detective in the US, and it's called How to Make the World Add Up in the UK. And it's a book about how to think clearly about the world, but in particular how to use numbers, how to use data to think clearly about the world. And the point I observed is I found that people were falling into a trap when it came to anything involving statistics, there was a reflexive skepticism. Oh, like lies, damn lies and statistics, or you can prove anything with statistics, or this famous book, How to Lie with Statistics. And just this idea that you seem kind of really clever if you say, oh, well, yeah, yeah you can prove anything with, with, with statistics. But if you're basically just rejecting everything on the grounds that it's got statistics in, well, that's not smart either. And so the challenge is to be discriminating in what you doubt and what you believe. Um, but all too often, we just let our emotions lead us astray and we just pay, you know, we believe whatever we want to believe, we disbelieve whatever we want to, to disbelieve. But when it's framed too much as, oh, people will believe anything and they should be more skeptical, I'm not so sure about that. I mean, you think about the, um, think about QAnon. You know, what's going on with QAnon? I mean, are these people who believe anything or are these people who doubt everything? who are skeptical of everything and every source of authority. You can frame it either way. That's an interesting horseshoe that I hadn't thought of. Yes, the fact that they seem to net out at a very similar sort of position. The people, I did a conversation with Peter Thiel a little while ago, and he gave this great example of um, climate skepticists and uh, climate optimists uh, net out at the same position. That the people that say, we're going to be absolutely fine with technology, it's going to come down the pike and everything will be sweet, just hold on. And the people that say we're, we're locked into this terrible future, both of them net out at the same position, which is we don't do anything right now. And yeah. the way that they get to that is different. And the futures that they envision are also very different, but they net out at the same position. I think um, the reflexive heterodoxy or reflexive contrarianism is a very easy way for people to seem smart. And that, to me, seems to be the primary seductive quality that taking mm -hmm. that on has. That, I mean, is that what your position is as well? Would you think that mostly what people are doing is looking cool by being a cynic? I think that that's definitely part of it. I think that uh, smackdowns work on social media. If you're calling somebody an idiot, that works a lot better than saying that somebody, somebody's great. So they, they're more likely to go viral. They're more likely to get purchased. But another thing that's driving this push towards excessive skepticism, this sort of toxic cynicism, is just that it's it's generally easier to think of negative arguments than positive arguments. So there's, I discussed some of the evidence for this early on in, in my book, The Data Detective, or How to Make the World That Up, um, where um, psychologists ask people to reason, uh, to produce arguments about a politically contentious issue. I think it was um, capital punishment at the time. It was the, the work was done in the 1990s. Um, and as you would expect, people find it much easier to, to generate arguments on their side or, or against the side that they oppose. That's not a surprise. But the arguments that were easiest 
to generate were arguments attacking the opposing belief. If you ask people to, to come up with reasons why the other side is stupid, they can do that. There's so many arguments, they find it incredibly um, easy to do that, that those arguments just flow really, really freely. Um, people also find it easy to come up with positive arguments for their own side, but not it's not as easy. So there's that the power of negativity, I think, is really fundamental there. Why do you think it is that it's so much easier for people to come up with dunks on the other side than arguments for their own side? I'm not sure. I mean, it may just be there's more ways to be wrong than to be right. Yeah. Um, yeah. But but yeah, I'm not absolutely sure. It's an interesting question. Yeah, I uh, I think that certainly the credentials that you get on Twitter come from dunking, right? Twitter's just a dunk porn fest for the most mm. part. Very rarely do you see, it's something interesting I noticed online, if somebody crosses a line with um, the type of language that they're using, the insults that they draw, whatever it might be, I haven't seen, in as long as I can remember on Twitter, someone breaking the fourth wall of the argument and saying, you've gone too far, that's out of order, that's unacceptable. No one ever seems to say that. They want to continue playing this sort of dry, side-eye, satirical, I don't care about, you can't affect me, bro, type debate. That's the game of tennis that appears yeah. to be being played. It's very rarely, whoa, 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 hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. You're, you're not allowed to say that. That's too much. Because that would indicate that they'd actually finally got to you, even if they perhaps had, but people will put up this front. So you have public... Uh, so you have public self-deception, which is probably reflecting internal self-deception as well. But that person may very well go away and spend the rest of the evening stewing over what yeah. their detractor online just accused them of. Yeah. And and social media are, are built for engagement and engagement is driven a lot by emotions. Often it's the negative emotions. Not always. I mean, cat videos, that's that's positive emotions. But a lot of it is driven by negative emotions. I'm I'm quite struck by the fact I've got nearly two hundred thousand followers on Twitter. I never get any retweets. No one ever no one ever engages with anything I post because I'm I mean, maybe I'm boring, but I like to think that it's because I'm calm. I just sort of you know, say reasonable things. And pe you know, that people might like it, people might follow me, but they don't retweet that stuff. And the the few tweets I've had that have gone viral are often something like oh it's a direct quote of a former government minister admitting that the government that she just left is completely ridiculous or something like that and then that's something that people can really get into oh finally this you know these politicians have admitted what hypocrites they are whatever hundreds thousands of retweets but um you know that's rare because i'm not i'm not really interested in in playing that game and the statistician andrew gelman though he makes an interesting point so i think in a longer form, like blogging, for example, there's more of a bias towards excessive positivity. So there's no harm in writing a blog post about other people's ideas and basically just saying, hey, they're great, these ideas are great, da, 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 that's fine. There's no cost to that, no one's gonna complain about that. If on the other hand, you write a blog post uh, or you know, on a, a long social media post on Facebook or Medium, whatever, Substack, whatever the, the format is, if you write something, taking somebody down, um, there, there are consequence, consequences for that. You've got to get your facts right. Otherwise, you could get sued, for example. No one cares if you got your facts right, if you're just being friendly to everyone. So yeah, it, it's an interesting observation that the bias towards positivity or negativity mm. depends on 
the the scale of the media and the type of the media. And actually, this, it's related to a point I make in in my latest book about how the scale of news, this the time scale of news, relates to the kind of news stories we pay attention to. So if you're if you're checking the news hour by hour, it's got to be gossip, market moves, um, stuff blowing up. Um, if you look at the news once a year, you can actually pick up totally different sorts of events. And if you were to look at the news once every 10 years, you could actually start to track stuff that really means something important, like the decline in um, childhood mortality or the increase in global temperatures. Uh, you, impossible to track these on a daily or weekly basis, but 10 years, 25 years, you can see them. Yeah, do not confuse the noise for the signal, I think. And that's what everybody's doing. Another really terrifying insight that David Perel came up with is that almost all of the content that we consume will have been created in the last 24 hours. You know, there's, mm -hmm. there's entire social media platforms that are dedicated to producing and publishing content that expires after 24 hours. It's the only way yeah. that you can consume it. And for anyone that knows what the Lindy effect is, they, it, they are platforms that are designed to be anti-Lindy. That there is literally no way that it gets to stick about. Mm -hmm. um, thinking about the concern that people have over relying on statistics, that sort of reflexive heterodoxy, I understand coming out of the back of a period where many experts said things and then went back on saying things and then did a double U-turn and then kept on going again. I, I I wonder whether it's a British thing, but I think we're kind of perennially orderly and the respect of authority uh, seems to be a little bit better in the UK. Maybe we don't have that rebel spirit that the US does uh, and maybe Australia as well. But even for me, I, you know, I've come out the other side of the last two years with a very different view of experts and expertise and the people in power. And I think it, for me, it seemed very much like a mask off moment that it's, the same degree of idiocy all the way up. And that's not a bad thing. It's idiocy all the way down as well, all the way down to me. But realizing the humanness and just how flawed the people that are given positions of um, prestige, power, mm -hmm. expertise, um, I, I, th I think that's going to be very, very difficult to regrow. And I wonder whether it can ever be done, uh, at least in the sort of medium-term future. I think... I'm not sure that it can. I think one of the interesting things is that uh, we tend to want to take an expert in one field and ask them to opine in other fields. Uh, and it can be very difficult both for us and for the experts to realize they've, they've strayed outside their area of expertise. So, for example, uh, in the pandemic, you might have somebody with really deep expertise in um, tracking virus variants and understanding mutations and what impact those mutations might have. And then you, then you might say, um, well, uh, you, you know, should we have another lockdown? Um, which actually immediately gets you into questions of uh, compliance. Would people accept another lockdown? How would they behave? Um, epidemiology, how would it spread if there was another lockdown? If, if and it, it, you sort of moved from it, and it seems like, oh, this is an expert in COVID, therefore I should ask them a question about COVID. But actually, no, they were expert, an expert in um, viral mutations, and now you're asking them about behavioral science, in fact. Um, but 
which is ridiculous, but it doesn't seem ridiculous. And I think even to most experts, it wouldn't seem ridiculous because they do know something. It wouldn't seem ridiculous to, to ask them to speculate. I mean, I, I interviewed um, a British statistician called David Spiegelhalter uh, many times. Uh, he's kind of a national treasure here in the UK. Professor Sir David Spiegelhalter, former president of the Royal Statistical Society. And he's terrific. But he's one of the few experts I encountered who would, you know, wax lyrical with with great confidence about something. And then you'd ask him a question and say, oh, I don't know anything about that. And that's it was striking because it's so unusual for people to to say, no, not a clue. Ask me another question. Um, but I think it's because he's so good. He's such a great communicator and he's got that confidence to say what he knows and then to shut up when he thinks he doesn't know anything. I mean, he still gets things wrong. We all get things wrong, but it's a good start. It's a signal of trustworthiness, I think, and honesty. It's actually something that people could hack. Um, mm -hmm. But I wonder whether ego defeats desire to manipulate when it comes to this, that people can't get their own egos out of the way, that the opportunity to pretend that they don't have a particular opinion on something that they maybe don't actually know anything about uh, is pushed to one side in place of the opportunity to uh, proliferate, uh, to propagate their ideas about the fact yeah. that they could or should be this polymath of solutions. Well, think about the media ecosystem as well. If you're, uh, say, a radio producer, you want to get an expert on to talk about COVID or, or anything else, the economy, whatever it is, um, you don't want someone who you ask them a question and they give you an answer and then you ask them a second question and they say, I don't know. I don't know about anything about any of that stuff. <laughs> I mean, of course, you could go super deep into their area of expertise, but, but, but you know, that? like, a, well, yeah, I mean. Good Morning Britain doesn't I, want that. I, I often want that, but yes, Good Morning Britain doesn't want that. The Most mainstream outlets don't want that for good reason, right? That's, that's not what not what most um, consumers of information want either. Right? Give me a broad overview. Um but then, yeah, then you have you select into the very few people who are actually capable of giving that broad overview, or the large number of people who are happy to you know go on TV and and just bluff it. I really like the term toxic cynicism. I think that it's a, a wonderful way to package up the current milieu that you really see online. The fact that it is uh, really excessive skepticism applied across everything apart from things that you have a prior that you want it to be true. Mm -hmm. Previously, people would have already had biases around whatever motivated reasoning they've got, but I'm not convinced that their degree of skepticism or cynicism about everything else would be quite as tuned up as it has been. So what you have now is an even greater bias, functionally an even greater bias toward the things that people want to believe and an even greater cynicism against the things that they don't want to believe. Yeah, and it's reinforced by all of the things we're very familiar with, you know, the echo chamber effect, the political tribalism and so on Audience and so on. I'm sure, uh, things that I'm sure you've, you've discussed many times on the podcast, but yeah, it, it, it doesn't help. It doesn't help at all. I mean, when I, when I think about why why we get things wrong, why we sort of make mistakes when we're consuming information in a, from social media or media. I mean, fundamentally, it, I think there are, there are three different things happening and we, and we, we pay different, different amounts of attention to them. So the first, the most logical is like, oh, we get stuff wrong because we don't know enough. So it's kind of incompetence. You don't have the expertise, you don't have the skills, 
you need more training, more information, you need to learn more about statistics or more about the history of Ukraine or more about whatever. And that's fine. That information deficit model is obviously important. Um, the second thing that's going wrong is these echo chambers. It's motivated reasoning. I want to reach a particular conclusion. Um, and that's incredibly important. That's why I one of the first chapters in my book, which is also one of my cautionary tales, is all about this great art critic falling for this terrible fraud. I mean, really terrible forgery that he should never have fallen for. And my point is, this guy knew more about Vermeer, as it was a Vermeer. This guy knew, well, or it wasn't a Vermeer, I should say, this guy knew more about Vermeer than anybody in the world. You couldn't have given him any more information. You couldn't have given him any more skill. He still made the mistake. He made the mistake because he was just so desperate to believe. So that's his second thing. You've got lack of skill. You've got the motivated reasoning, the, the desperation to believe. Then there's a third thing I think we often miss, which is just, we're just not really paying attention. And you're scrolling through on a small screen and, you know, there's 144 characters. And you, you know, it's so easily just read something and you think you read something, but actually you read something else or, um, you know, you didn't stop to think for a moment. Is that actually true? Could that be true? Um, it's, and it's amazing. And in all three cases, uh, we've got this, we've also got a meta problem, which is a, a lack of awareness. So the famous Dunning-Kruger effect, unskilled and we don't know we're unskilled. Um, but you've also got motivated reasoning and the I'm not biased bias. Because think about it, if you thought you were biased, you you wouldn't be biased, right? I mean, obviously you think you're occupying a reasonable position on the spectrum, right? Otherwise, if you thought it was an unreasonable position, you'd move your position. And then, of course, the brain's incredibly good at creating these illusions that we really are paying attention, that you, you really can drive and look at your phone at the same time. You really can read the paper and listen to a podcast at the same time. And, and, and of course, you, you can't. Um, so we make these three mistakes and we also make these meta mistakes where we convince ourselves that actually this stuff doesn't really apply to us. I suppose as well, the fact that we need to deceive other people, the easiest way to deceive other people is to believe the deception ourselves, yeah. right? The fact that if it is, and this is an adaptive quality. In fact, I, I remember seeing something about one of the justifications or one of the reasons that was put forward as to why humans have got theory of mind and consciousness at all is that it allows us to be able to model what other people might think and mm -hmm. therefore be able to put our ideas forward in a way which would create the kind of outcome that it is that we want because we're socially so complex. There was a, a story that you had, Apollo Robbins, the world's most famous theatrical pickpocket, says, yeah. the things right in front of us are often the hardest to see the things you look at every day that you're blinded to. What was the similarity between magic and misinformation? Yeah, it, well, it is partly this fact of believing firmly. You've got this incredibly powerful belief that you are noticing things, that you are paying attention, and you're not. So Apollo Robbins, his TED Talk is fantastic. It's only nine minutes. I, I won't spoil it. You should just watch it. It's an absolute masterclass in storytelling as well as, you know, he's an amazing pickpocket, but he's just lifting stuff. He'll say, oh, have I, just just check your pocket. Have I got your wallet? And and while he checks the, the pocket, he takes his watch. And then he says, oh, 
now you've noticed I've got your watch. And then he suddenly reaches for his watch. And then Apollo Robbins takes, takes the wallet out of his pocket because he's looking at his watch. And you think, oh, I can pay attention to my wallet and my watch at the same time. Like you think, you know, I am, my, my senses are monitoring them both, but they're not. You've just got this illusion that they are. And that's what the pickpocket exploits. And the same thing is true um, for information uh, on, uh, on the media, social media. So a fantastic little study done by, if I remember rightly, David Rand at MIT and Gord Pennycook at uh, Regina University in, in Canada, where they, what they did was they um, asked people, uh, some people, they showed them a bunch of headlines, some of which were fake news, and said, uh, you know, would you retweet this or not? And basically people would retweet a lot of fake news that was, was on their side. So like if you're a Trump supporter and there's some fake news about Biden being an idiot, you'll you'll tweet it. If you're a Democrat and you see some fake news that says Trump's done something ridiculous, you know, you'll retweet that. So that's not surprising. What's surprising about this study is um, they in, when, if they instead just ask people, can you tell me whether you think this headline is true or not? They were actually very good at figuring out, oh, that actually no, there's no way Trump is going to deport Melania. That's not actually going to happen. It's a delicious headline. I'd like to retweet it, but it's obviously not true. So if you ask people instead of will you retweet it, is it true? They can figure out the difference between truth and falsehood. If you say, if you ask them, well, do you think it's important to retweet only stuff that's true? People will say, yeah, it is important. Only I don't want to retweet misinformation. I only want to retweet stuff that's true. So you go, well, this is this is weird. People retweet fake news. People can spot fake news. People say it's wrong to retweet fake news and I wouldn't do it. So what's going on? And the answer is they're just not paying attention. And so the final kicker to this study is when random Pennycook ask people, show them a headline and say, and this is done, they did it in the lab, but they also did it in the wild on Twitter. They show people a headline and they say, um, do you think this headline is true or not? And you know, people will evaluate it. And then they just watch their behavior for the next 48 hours and they are less likely to retweet untrue claims because you ask them once to stop and think about it. And having stopped and think about it, you're just in a different frame of mind. It's like, oh, I should probably think about whether stuff's true or not. And it lasts 48 hours. It's incredible. And that just shows, you know, we're just not we're not paying attention. We think we would naturally evaluate the truth of every claim we see on Twitter or Facebook or whatever that we just do it. And if we get it wrong, it's because we're not smart enough or because we're we're biased. But often we don't it, we don't notice that something's true or false because it never occurs to us to spend a second's energy on evaluating the claim. And so we don't. I wonder whether revealed and stated preferences clash up against each other a little bit here. I think a lot of people, when asked, do you think that you should be retweeting things which are only proven to be true or obvious satire? Yeah. Yes. But if you see something which is advantageous to your particular side, you're going to let that one slide? Of course you are. You think, well, yeah. uh, you know, this uh, may not be true. I don't need to check too much, but it's pretty, pretty fortunate for whatever my point of view is. And I, I mean, I mean, I agree, but that's why it's so important to have done the experiment where they tested the impact of just asking people to evaluate one statement for truth, and then were able to observe in the wild, you know, on social media, 
that it changed people's behavior. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'm sure people exaggerate how important it is to them only to retweet the truth. But you can, by just asking them to think about it for a second, just for a second, you can change their behavior uh, over the course of, of the next couple of days. So what we've talked about so far has been logic, rationality, understanding of cognitive biases, motivated reasoning and stuff like that. You also say that economists should get more in touch with their feelings. And I'm very interested in the limits of the usefulness of uh, a rational approach. Uh, mm-hmm. what, what role does intuition have, if any, in the modern world and stuff like that? So what are your thoughts there? So I've changed my mind over, over the years. So as, a, as an economist, as a young economist, I was taught rational choice theory. And, you know, this is a good way to understand people's decision making. And of course, people aren't always rational all the time, but it's a great way of, it's a great starting point. Uh, and in fact, I wrote a whole book called The Logic of Life, which is all about the different ways in which rational choice theory could be used to understand things like uh, addiction and um, discrimination, crime, uh, all kinds of things that don't seem to have any logic. They're just, they're just you know, human weakness or they're evil things. And some of them are evil things but they're evil things with a logic behind them. Um, I, wouldn't have, I wouldn't write that book today because I'm much more interested now in the psychology of things, in what's you know, now known as behavioral economics. So taking into account emotions, taking into account our cognitive limitations alongside rational choice. Actually, I think the two together are quite powerful because if you've got a good grounding in rational choice theory, you have a good sense of what the optimal decision is at least under certain conditions, you need enough information, enough data. Um, and if you've got a good ground in, in behavioral economics and in psychology, you've got a good sense of what it is that's going to stop you from making that uh, optimal What's going to mediate it? What's going to stop you from being that optimal decision maker? Yeah. And I mean, this is why, and it comes into not just decision making, but also the way we process information. So this is why the the opening of my latest book, instead of teaching you some statistical trick or talking about correlation or, or anything like that, I say, look, the first thing you have to do is observe your emotional response. When you're reading a headline, when you're reading an article, looking at something on, on social media, before you start calculating or evaluating or looking for sources or any of that, first of all, just say, how does that make me feel? Am I, am I angry? Does it make me feel vindicated? Does it make me feel scared? Whatever it is, what's that emotion? And then just, and then go and have another look, look at the claim again. Having observed your own emotion, it's, it's going to look different. And I'm not saying don't feel emotions, don't feel angry, you know, it's, don't, don't feel happy. It's obviously it's legitimate to have emotions, but you know, you should notice that you're having that emotional reaction before you go back and, and try to engage your powers of logic. Cause they're, they're not, they're not friendly to each other. It's best to try and keep them a bit, a bit separate. So yeah, understanding emotion is incredibly important. I wonder, it seems to me to be a, a common trajectory. Russ Roberts from Econ Talk was on the show a little while ago and his new book, Wild Problems, is, is literally all about this. It's the uh, limits outside of uh, economic theory and why you need to have something else that you mm-hmm. could call intuition or gut instinct or whatever. And uh, there's, I, I find it fascinating to look at people that have spent a long time in a particular industry and where they get to as the trajectory starts to to really sort of um, accumulate a ton of experience and it seems like 
everyone's zeroing in on this. You know, it's the same way mm-hmm. as looking at your grandparents for how to live a good life. As the grandparents towards the end of it, they're, you know, not really chasing the status so much anymore. They're not playing with keeping up with the Joneses. They're not picking fights with people for no apparent reason. They're just settling into something that's a little bit more simple. And I think that, yeah, uh, you and Russ as um, flag-waving economist ambassadors for someone integrating a little bit more felt sense holistically seems like a, a good signal to me. Yeah, well, it's very flattering to be compared to Russ. He's got an amazing podcast and he's he's got a lot of experience. And his, I mean, he's coming at it from a slightly different angle to me, but I think it's a very it's a very important angle, which is he's he's just super skeptical about our ability to know anything to understand any system it's like it's always more complicated than you think um i have a a little bit more faith in our ability to comprehend the world than russ does uh but i think it's a it's a really useful check to say do do you really think you understand this do you really think we've we can fix this now with with enough data um, cause it, that's a very tempting path and it's very important to have someone like Russ just whispering in your ear. Yeah, are you sure? Are you sure you really understand? What was that story about Arthur Conan Doyle and the fairies? Oh, I, I love it. I love that story. It's, um, it's, it's one of the cautionary tales and it, it's a, it's quite a famous story. Although as with many of the cautionary tales, you've heard, you might've heard some of the story but you, de- you don't know all the details, and the details are so delightful. But it's all about Conan Doyle, uh, the, the creator of Sherlock Holmes, one of the most famous men in the British Empire, hearing that two little girls from Yorkshire near Bradford have taken photographs of fairies at the bottom of the garden. And he heard about this, I think, in 1920. The first photograph was actually taken in 1916, if I remember rightly. Um, and he wrote a whole book, uh, The Coming of the Fairies. And he said, well, obviously, this could be a hoax um, and you be the judge. But I think more likely it is an epoch making discovery. <laughs> you know, Spoiler, it was not an epoch making discovery. It was a hoax. I was just so fascinated by both by how Doyle convinced himself of this thing that is transparently ludicrous, but also what the girls were thinking. What, how, what makes two little girls perpetrate such a hoax? And at what point did they think, oh, this has all got much bigger than we ever intended? And so both sides of that story are, are rather beautiful. It's something to see a author that created a character who is supposed to pay attention to the little things and be aware of his cognitive biases fall prey to two little girls. How, how did they make the photo? Well, this is one of the interesting things. Uh, that this whole thing was, was deconstructed much, much later by the British Journal of Photography, which for decades had said, this is ridiculous. <laughs> We're not going to descend. And in the end, they said, all right, fine, we'll look at this. And they, the editor of the British Journal of Photography published like a 10-issue 10, 10, uh, expose. It's about 80 pages long in total. It's incredible. And there are, I think there are five photos, there are four different methods of fakery. And that's one of the things that did confuse people. Because if you're looking for like, what is the one thing they did to make these photos? There is no one thing, you, you will never find it. Um, and, and funnily enough, that links back to that we were talking about stage magic. One, one of the ways in which really good stage magicians 
will fool people and they've and it helps them to fool other magicians is they'll do the same trick over and over again you say people say oh you should never perform the same trick twice but they do they'll perform the same trick over and over again but each time there's a different method to achieve the same effect uh so we know one time it's like you've palmed the coin another time it's kind of you're you're doing this you're doing that you're using a a dummy and so somebody who's trying to get a sense of like oh how are they doing that oh i think he might have done that and then they'll watch the next time you do it and you you do it in a different way and they're just more confused than ever and so this is this is the the problem that that conan doyle had so one of the one of the paintings one of the photographs was actually heavily post-processed by an expert so it was basically photoshopped um you know you physically painted over the negative and that was supposed to be to enhance it for display at a lecture another one was a double exposure um which is not surprising given one of the girls was actually a little girl she's 17 years old and she woke she worked in a photo studio doing double exposures all day i'm like not really that surprising she could do that another one was just um uh you know paper cutouts and they just you know just took a photograph of a little girl sitting next to a paper cutout and you know the photo's two-dimensional so you you can't tell it's paper cutout um so these different methods and he just went through these extraordinary contortions to convince himself that it that it must be true and he he wasn't just the creator of sherlock holmes of course he was that two other things he had intervened um in in a kind of in the serial of you know the serial podcast you know this whole thing he was involved in that the edwardian equivalent of serial where there was somebody who'd been convicted of this crime and conan doyle was convinced he was innocent and it assembled this amazing amount of evidence and got him off and i think probably rightly um so he was could be completely forensic the other thing do you want to guess where conan doyle's first ever work was published You'll no never idea. guess. No idea. British Journal of Photography. He was actually an expert photographer. He knew loads about photography. And so that was all just, you have to think, well, how could he be fooled? And it, and it was just, oh, well, I know so much about photography. I know how hard photography is. These little girls can't possibly have, have pulled off trick photography because I know how hard trick photography is. So it's something we see over and over again is expertise is an advantage if you're thinking clearly and you're not emotional. But once you're emotionally engaged, expertise can be an, in an active disadvantage. It can actively drag you down because you create more reasons, even if they're spurious reasons, to believe whatever it is you're, you're wanting to believe. One of my friends, Gwinda Bogle, has this fantastic insight where he says, when intelligent people affiliate themselves to ideology, their intellect ceases to guard against wishful thinking and instead begins to fortify it, causing them to inadvertently mastermind their own delusion and to very cleverly become stupid. Conan Doyle is an example, and so was Abraham Bradius, the art critic we were talking about. He, he saw things in this fake Vermeer that I would never see, that most people would never see, incredibly sophisticated reasons to believe that it was genuine. And there was one big reason to think it wasn't genuine, which is it didn't look anything like anything Vermeer had ever painted. Um, But he was willing to look past all of that because he could see all these subtleties. And um, yeah, expertise, I'm in favor, but uh, it can be misused like anything else. Tell me about what you learned to do with the invention of the bicycle. Because one of my friends, George Mack, sent me a study 
years ago that explained the efficiency, the movement efficiency of different animals in the animal kingdom. And it's some particular number, whatever it is, energy versus distance or something like that. And then he adds in, they add in a human on a bicycle. And then yeah. a human on a bicycle is a factor of 10 better than the the best moving albatross or whatever, marlin or whatever it is. So what did you learn about the, the bicycle? What did I learn about the bicycle? I mean, there's so many different things. I studied the bicycle for another book of mine called 50 Things That Made the Modern Economy, which also is a, a podcast series. And I just explored different inventions. And one of the delights of the bicycle uh, was just the way that it reshaped society. You know, when, when, when people were ready, the bike was quite a long time in gestation. Uh, but when people were ready, it just turned everything on its head. Uh, so it was, it was a real force for the emancipation of women um, who could cycle around without a chaperone. Uh, and there were various campaigners who said, oh, you know, this is going to lead to fornication and prostitution. Debauchery and so on. On, a, yeah, on the back of a bicycle. But um, uh, and, there's, and there's a there's a wonderful there's a um, a kind of tabloid news headline of the day, which which is about a, a woman. I think it was Amalia Allen, if I remember her name rightly. And it was front page news because she'd gone gone bicycling in trousers. And so this headline was, she, she wore trousers and uh, she's a divorced lady cycling around in trousers. But the, the interesting thing was like everyone was excited about this divorced lady in trousers. No one was worried about the, the bicycling. So it's incredible uh, freedom. And there was one um, one of the leading uh, women's rights campaigners, and I'm, I'm blanking on her name, who was asked, who, who was basically campaigning for universal suffrage and so on throughout the 19th century, and I think died in about 1920. And she was asked what, what had been the greatest contributor to women's freedom, and, and she said the bicycle. Uh, so it, these, these inventions, whether it's the brick or whether it's paper or whether it's the bicycle, they, they change the world by changing us. It's not just they solve a little problem that we had. They slot right into our society and, uh, and we just go on as normal, except that one little thing is easier. We've got a better mousetrap. They, they work because they just they create new winners and new losers and reshape the way we live. And the bicycle is a, is a great example of that. I remember learning about when caffeine was first introduced when coffee shops first came about because up until that point during the middle of the day if a gentleman and his friends wanted to go and discuss some serious philosophical or political ideas the only place that they could go would be the tap house or the pub and yeah. inevitably after a few of the only drinks that were mostly consumed there the conversation degenerated somewhat whereas as soon as the introduction of caffeine happened that actually permitted people to go out during the day and maybe even not only have it degrade but improve over time as they drank a little bit more caffeine and they were a little bit more alert and and they were uh, and this is something i remember reading about aristotle he was going to these uh, discussions at a influential friend's house dinners on an evening time and he put forward a suggestion that they replace all of the cups and the glasses on the tables with smaller ones and he mm -hmm. said because it'll make us think that we're drinking the same amount but we'll actually drink a little bit less and that will uh, facilitate it's going to foster a, a better conversational environment and the same thing whatever 1500 years later is stop drinking so much during the day if you want to have a good, converse, good conversation I would, I would love to see the randomized trial on that you know did, did that work um, 
but yeah, it, I mean, it's it's amazing. And uh, there's um, there's a related example, which is Henry Pelham, the British Prime Minister. Uh, this is 1700s, if, I, if I'm correct, if I remember rightly. He changed the tax regime on tea. So tea was taxed at 100% or more. Uh, and so loads of smuggling, not much tea actually drunk. And he slashed tax on tea and the, put the smugglers out of business. People consumed a lot more tea. Tax revenues from tea went up. This is what the current British government is trying to do, but it turns out it's not as easy as Henry Pelham made it look. Um, so they cut taxes, revenues went up, and um, an economist, uh, Francesca Antman, found that she could track this massive spike in the consumption of tea because there'd been this big policy change, and she could actually track it through to the mortality figures. She got all the births and deaths and was able to see the decline in the mortality rate because people were boiling their water because that's what you need to do for tea. And then they didn't have germ theory. They didn't know it was making the water safer, but it was. And you could see it in the death figures. That's very cool. I got suggested, complete tangent, I got suggested a book this weekend, uh, Churchill's Ministry of Ungentlemanly Warfare. You familiar with this? No, I immediately want to read it, though. I am going to be harping on about this for quite a while. So in 1939, before Germany invades Poland, there's murmurings that the war's afoot, and mm -hmm. the British government decides that they need to start up a secret clandestine guerrilla arm and they need to come up with very innovative ways to disrupt the potential oncoming Nazi offensive and occupation. So they start to find inventors, criminals, uh, soldiers, but they've all got very unique, different skill sets. One of them had created a, a, the limpet mine. He was the inventor of the limpet mine. And he was now driving around in a 18-foot-high caravan, complete with four bedrooms and two bathrooms and hot and cold running water in the 1930s. Uh, and they got a hold of him. And they got a hold of this Scottish guy that had lived uh, under this incredibly sort of austere environment and was just the most reckless guy. And he would go out and womanize on an evening time and then come in during the day. And he created the first pamphlet of guerrilla warfare ever. And it was edible in case they were captured by the enemy. And he timed himself to see how long it would take to eat it. And he said that with a good sized glass of water, a gentleman could consume the entire pamphlet in less than two minutes. <laughs> and just an end, it's like a, a, the Avengers, but sort of in the 1930s and gentlemanly and, and it's just it's outstanding so uh churchill's ministry of ungentlemanly warfare really well written super beautiful prose really easy super accessible and uh, i'm uh, in love with it at the moment no, it's very good i don't i love it i should i have to read it and, and investigate cautionary tales i always finding whenever i read anything these days i'm like just i'm i'm just here for when something goes terribly wrong and i can start learning lessons that's that's so that, that's the cautionary tales, uh, cautionary tales mission in life. You can justify it however you want for the podcast. <laughs> there was a one of the things that he'd done with the limpet mine. This guy, they were struggling to find a way to create a time release mechanism that would dissolve in water or would uh, reduce down in water at an even time. So you could have a different type of powder that could be used, but the compression of the powder was, the, there was varieties in that. Too much compression, it would never go off. Too little compression, and it might kill the diver that's supposed to set it. 
and uh, this guy was eating uh, aniseed balls. Um, his daughters dropped some on the floor because he was always shifting them off the, the bench where they needed to work in his house before they got this office in, in London. Uh, and he realized that the aniseed balls almost always seemed to dissolve in his mouth at the same speed, no matter what he did. Uh, so they ended up using aniseed balls as the detonation <laughs> triggers for these things. But then they realized that they needed to keep them dry because if they got slightly wet during transportation or whatever, that they didn't, that it would have changed the length of time that the fuse would have gone for as soon as it gets in water. So he then realized that a condom was the exact size and shape to be able to protect this thing. So this is before you could Amazon anything. So they went around his hometown picking up aniseed balls and condoms and apparently bought all of the aniseed balls and condoms in the local town where he lived and ended up and they, they said uh the author just decides to add a side note saying it is uh it is unclear whether or not there was an increase in uh childbirths uh nine months later in and around guildford or wherever it was that this guy was from but yeah it's phenomenal so i'm i'm pretty confident oh, that you'll enjoy I, that I, I love it i love it on the subject of an increase in childbirths and uh cutting taxes which we were talking about with tea. There is a fantastic study uh, of something that happened in Australia about 15 years ago where the the government said, oh, we're going to give you a baby bonus. If you have a baby, 3,000 Australian dollars, um, that's about 1,500 US dollars, something like that. Um, so like, it's worth having. And they announced it with six weeks notice. So they announced it in mid-May and it was going to come into effect at the end of June, beginning of July. And people said, is that not a bit reckless? I mean, are people not going to try and time their babies it, to get the, the, the baby bonus? And the Australian, shouldn't you have just announced it with immediate effect? And the Australian government were like, oh, no, 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 it's fine, it's fine, it's fine, no one will do that. And the birth rate on the 1st of July was more than twice the birth rate on the last day of June. <laughs> Like all those people basically just going, just hold on, yep. just hold on. Uh, and it's amazing. It's amazing. You eat your, your birth and indeed your death responds to tax incentives because they found a similar effect with abolishing inheritance tax. Um, so, yeah, people people respond to incentives. This is this is the your cla the classic economist in me, rational choice theory. It does actually explain a few things. My friend's wife is a school teacher and in her class last year, she had a sweepstakes where all of the kids, she was pregnant, sweepstakes up on the board. This is the month that the new baby is supposed to be born in. And everybody pick a day. When do you think it's going to happen or whatever? Uh, <laughs> but she didn't tell them the actual due date. It's like, this is the month or whatever. This is the period. Uh, and her least favorite student, the one that she really hates, chose the correct due date. Mm -hmm. uh, and sure enough, she was getting closer to the time that she's supposed to give birth. And her waters broke on the evening of that day. And she held on to not give birth to the baby until the next day to spite this child that she hated. It's, she sounds like a really inspirational teacher. I, I really, I thought that that conversation was phenomenal. It was absolutely great. There's, there were many lessons there. Although I would have said, could you not just have the baby and then lie about the birthday? Perhaps, yeah, yeah, which would be more more surreptitious. But there's a degree of manipulation and honesty going on here, which is sort of be it's a beautiful dance. Um, yeah. Speaking of taxes and speaking of children, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you, what do you think about incentivizing British mothers with tax deductions 
to have children. I think it was originally a Hungarian policy. Uh, if we can put to one side the person that actually came up with it or proposed it or okayed it, I thought when I first heard of that a month ago, I was like, surely this is a win. Surely this has got to be a win for mothers that want to decide to have children. It's going to open up their financial freedom. It's going to give them more time at home. It's going to maximize. We're going to the population collapse and all of the different things that we need. What's the view of an economist philosopher? Uh, so, I mean, the two things I would say up front is, is first of all, do you have any reason to believe that um, society wants more or fewer children than individual mothers would choose by themselves you know is there some reason to believe that they're they're not taking into account you know some social cost or social benefit it's it's not it's not clear because you can cut it both ways um the second thing i'd say is we do already incentivize children in the sense that the income support is paid there's a child benefit paid so if you have children you do get money until they're 18 years old uh, to offset the cost of having them. Um, I guess the third thing, though, is if fundamentally, if what you want is more people, um, you could also be more welcoming to immigrants. So you could do both. And I find it interesting that the people advocating the baby bonuses are generally not advocating uh, freer um, immigration restrictions. Uh, and I would have thought that actually, when you look at it logically, but those things are probably pushing in the same direction. Certainly something we've had in in the UK from open borders with the EU was lots of quite young people coming by young. I mean, like people in their 20s coming, um, working hard, paying taxes, not really demanding a lot of benefits because you know they're young, they're of working age um, and uh, didn't seem to be very popular. Uh, but it's not clear to me that that's actually a worse solution than trying to incentivize uh, mothers to have children. Does that I feel like I've, I can't? I don't know if I've over-engineered the answer to the question or, or dodged no, it. I think well, it's interesting. It's it's things that I hadn't considered. Certainly, the immigration point is one that people would point to. I think that it it shouldn't be the case that your population growth is at the stage where you need to import other people in order to be able to supplement it. It feels like immigration should be a bonus on top rather than something that, because if you continue the clock forward based on the current trends, you would end up with a very non-British born British population, although you would have second generation and third generation and whatever, whatever, whatever. And everybody is a hodgepodge of everything. I'm sure that if I looked at my genetic tree or, that I would end up being from Ireland or Scotland or some other place. Um, I, I understand the concern that some people have about diluting down British culture by importing too many people that aren't necessarily immediately a part of that. Integration would be great. Um, being from the northeast of the UK, it's pretty diverse, at least in the schools and the areas that I was at, it was. Um, it's an interesting one. I I, I don't know. I, I think that the, the really cool question around is the reason that women aren't having more children because they don't think that they can afford it, mm -hmm. basically. Um, I see in the comments on a lot of videos that I've done to do with the mating crisis, dating challenges, young people not having sex, uh, more than 50% of women for the first time in history childless by 30. That wasn't right as it was the other one uh, that did that study, 22 to 45-year-old women 
unmarried and childless for the first time, blah, 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 blah. Some of the comments from an N of one completely unrandomized study uh, were talking about it's very difficult to bring a child into this world because it's pretty expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So just a couple of thoughts then. So one is, I mean, it's it's a good question, but we're not the right people to answer it. I was basically two, two blokes. I don't know if you've got children. I've got three children, but I think my wife probably knows more about the decisions to have these children than I do. You know, we should probably ask more women uh, who have decided to have children and who have decided not to have children. Um, the second point is that um, Daniel Kahneman, I think he originally got this idea from Kurt Lewin, great um, psychologist of the early 20th century and, and mid 20th century. Daniel Kahneman says we often think of the, if you imagine the analogy with a car, we want to get the car to move faster. And we, we're always thinking about rather than removing you know, the brakes, hitting, hitting the accelerator. But yeah, take your foot off the brake. So yeah, the, I, th- I think your instinct is absolutely right. Before you say we should pay women more money to have children, we should look around and go and, and figure out why they're not having children in the first place. And is, and is it a problem? Or are they having children for, are they not having children for completely legitimate reasons that actually there's no, you know, no reason you'd want to, to that influence would be, their decision? That would be a great study for someone to do, to look at for a woman, for women, big chunk of women, nice big sample. How many children would you want to have? How many children do you think you'll have? Or perhaps even if you were to take a, it would be difficult to do it for right now, but you'd certainly be able to look at maybe the last 20 years, women that were 50s, perhaps. Mm-hmm. How many children did you want to have and how many did you end up having? I mean, I, how many different like fertility issues, yeah. availability of husbands, cycling through different partners. Like, oh, you, There's a million different things that could get in the way, but that would be fascinating yeah. to look at how many children a woman would want to have and how many she ends up having. And if, if I remember rightly, so I interviewed for my BBC podcast, more or less, I've, I've interviewed Marina Adshade a few times. She's a, she's an economist at uh, British Columbia uh, University, and she's written a book called Dollars and, uh, Dollars and Sex, if I remember rightly. And she, if I, I may be misremembering, but the last time we were talking about fertility, uh, fertility rates, she, I think she told me that women are in general having fewer children than they would like. And that that is something that would concern me much more than just looking at a demographic pyramid and saying, well, oh, I don't like the I don't like it's the turned look of upside that. down. Yeah. I would be I would be much more interested in, well, you know, how do the people who are alive today mm. feel about the decisions that they're making and would do they want to make different decisions if only they had the money or if only, you know, some other obstacle was removed. Yes, I think, well, one of the fascinating things is that a woman's desire to have children is going to be culturally mediated. That doesn't stay static throughout time either. Neither do the economic conditions that she's trying to bring the child into the world with, which is going to mediate her choice to do that. Neither do the availability of potential partners for her to be able to create the child with and then raise the child with. So there are a lot of moving parts as we go through this, but young people between the age of 18 and 30 are having three times less sex 
uh, over the last 10 years. That's gone down mm-hmm. specifically for men, uh, 8% to 28%. It's also gone up for women as well, the, the amount of uh, sexlessness. And this finishes in 2018. I, can't, I need someone to do the study between 2018 and 2022. I need to find out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Somebody out there, tell me how little sex everybody's having. So uh, so talk, talk to Marina Radshade. See if Marina would, would be interviewed. She's great. She knows way more about this than I do. And uh, yeah, she'd be a really interesting uh, interviewee. I shall steal her contact details off you after this. Look, Tim Harford, ladies and gentlemen, Tim, very much appreciate you, very much appreciate your work. Where should people go if they want to check out more of the stuff that you do online? So uh, Cautionary Tales with Tim Harford is the podcast or on uh, the BBC, BBC More or Less. Uh, And my website is timharford.com. You read all the articles, you can find the Twitter links, all that good stuff. Thanks, Tim. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. 